Am I doing the sermon? Um, I don't know where he is. Pastor Bob? Oh, Pastor Bob! Oh, Oh. Oh, my, this is awkward. I guess uh, there's something about getting up early, huh? Getting ready in time. Well, he wasn't kidding about getting your Christmas shopping done early. I... I don't think that's going to help now. Normally, this time I would invite the kids to come forward and have a have a have a kids talk together. But uh, like, yeah. Some random guy dressed in a fuzzy bathrobe asks the kids to come forward. He wants to talk with them. I don't think so, right? Yeah, good for you, parents. You use exercise a little discretion there. We just sang the song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. And that's, a, that's an Advent song. It's a song that anticipates what is not yet. We, 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 we sing of that day that we long for, which, which strengthens us to live toward a coming day, even though it is not yet. We're still in the dark. It's still, it's still early morning. But the day is at hand. The day is coming. And so that's, that's really where uh, in, the, in the Scripture where we're going to be this morning, that um, out of Romans chapter 13, that I've entitled it, Jesus is coming, so wake up early. Wake up early. The, the, whole, the whole message here is, is it's, it's no longer a time for the things of nighttime, you know, pajamas, bathrobe. It's time to put aside the things of the night, the things of... I just take this bathrobe off, right? No! No! <laughs> no, it's okay, really. <laughs> yeah. Some of you are very relieved. But I'm going to keep my slippers on. I hope that you will indulge me there. Let's see, lay aside the things of, of night and put on the robe for the day. See, you got to get my collar right there. Tom, is that okay? All right. All right good. That, that whole imagery, now I know that's a little foolish, a little silliness, but, that's the, but there's something there that will be remembered. In fact, if it's okay, I'm going to keep my slippers on, all right? This will be the day that that, that, that that pastor preached in his slippers. Now, why did he? You'll, you may remember nothing else, but you'll remember that. And then, but why did he do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Put aside and put on. There's things for the night and there's things for the day. 
And it's time to put on the things of darkness and put on the things of the day. That's the text that's before us. And I actually gave you the Bible text this morning because I, I chose the New American Standard Bible, which is not the one I normally use on Sundays and not the one in the, in the, um, in the, the church Bible that's there in, in the bench in front of you. And so uh, I gave you that text. There's a couple of word choices that they, they do in the translation that I think just gets us a little closer, a little clearer. And so let's, let's stand together as we begin, properly attired, and reading God's Word together. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Do this, do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer. Than when you first believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing or partying and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, our fallen humanity, and in regard to its lusts and desires. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us from your word. Lord, remind us that time is indeed short, and that is not that is not a cause for worry, that is a cause for joy. Lord, that, that the, the night is soon ended, the, the, the day is at hand. Father, strengthen us in this reality, Lord. Press it upon our hearts that we might be up early, that we might all the more be ready for your day. Father, that day that we've longed for, that we pray for, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Father, help us out of your word this morning for that to be in our own lives while we wait, looking to the day, that that would be a little more true. Your will be done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, take your seats. We just sang the song, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, although it's an Advent hymn, though it's a hymn of His second coming, anticipating, we around this time of year not only remember that our Lord came, but we remember that because He came, as He said, He is coming again, just as He said. And that informs them, that informs then what we do. Verse 11 started out, do this knowing the time, or because you know the time. It's a causal clause. Because you know the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Our salvation is nearer. Do this. Well, do what? Do this points back to the last exhortation that he just gave them. In this chapter, it would be from verses 8 to 10, to owe no one anything except to love one another. The overriding obligation that any Christian has then is to live in love toward others. 
In fact, that's the fulfillment of God's revelation in his law. The law is fulfilled in this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Do this, he says, because you know the time. Do this because the time of the old, it's like, it's like a big hourglass. I was in Newburgh just yesterday, and they had an antique store, a couple of them on the main street in the, in the, in the center of the older downtown. And, and they had this huge hourglass. It was like this big. It was beautiful. And I wanted it. But the shop was closed. I would have brought it this morning and showed you. And I would have had it set and ready that the sand is about to run out. Time is running out. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Because we know that time, it changes then what we will do, what we will choose, how we will live. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul, Paul gave the church, in fact, one of his first letters, he gave the church the same exhortation. He says, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be self-controlled. Now, he's not telling you you can't sleep. He's not telling you you can't take a nap. Not right now, but he's not telling you you can't take a nap. But obviously this is figurative language. To not be asleep and not alert and not aware of what's going on around us, not aware of the bigger reality of the truth of His coming and how would we order our lives in ways that we are all the more ready, that our lives anticipate His coming, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of others around us. That when, we, when they see something I do, choices I make, does that suggest to them that I'm, looking, I'm living for a promised future or that I'm living in the day and in the present moment. Last April, it was just after Easter, Julie and I woke up early. It was like 3 a.m. We woke up early. Did you know it's still dark at 3 a.m.? I didn't even know there was a 3 a.m. Where did that come from? We woke up early. We had to be at the airport at 4 a.m. We, we had a friend pick us up. And you find out how good of a friend someone can be when they're at your house at 3.30 a.m. to pick you up to go to the airport. Because we had long flights ahead of us. We're going to Zimbabwe. Now, going to Zimbabwe is not worth getting up at 3 a.m. But Jamie... And Ezra are there. Yeah, we're going to, we were going to see Ruth and Kuda too. But Jamie, our little grandson, now five, was waiting for us. And, and little Ezra, not even, not even a year old, little Ezra, six months old, had just been placed with their family. They're in the process of adopting him. We were going to see him for the very first time. Yeah. It's, it, it wasn't so hard knowing that. It wasn't so hard getting up at 3 a.m. In fact, it was hard getting to sleep the night before in anticipation of where we were going, leaning already into the day that was before us. Our salvation is nearer, he says, than when we first believed. Jesus' return, his will on earth, he rules the world, not yet. But soon, our salvation is nearer. You know, I look around this morning, and 
We don't know when he is coming. But for some of you, that's really not an issue. For some of us, whether it's his coming or our going, it is nearer than we realize we are running out of time. And we need to lean into the future that's before us forever. Joy to the world is nearer than ever. And so we need to lay aside the bathrobe. We need to put off the pajamas. The night is almost gone, verse 12 says. The day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. When we first came to faith, we did that, didn't we? There were things that suddenly, obviously, already didn't fit. And we lay them aside. I think of the music I used to listen to driving around in my racy red 1970 Ford Maverick. Some of you remember those. It wasn't racy, but it was mine. And most of those cassettes, I quickly parted ways with. I was no longer on a highway to hell. God had set a new road before me. Some of you caught that shame on you. What are you listening to? It's time to, to, to lay aside the things that don't fit with this new faith. And I, and I found now a few months after coming to faith in Christ, a few months I'm going, away into the, I'm, I'm going away to the Air Force. And they lock us up in a thing called basic training for several weeks. And then they slowly give you your freedom again. And when you give you freedom again, young teenage, well, teenage young men do stupid things. And yet it was easy to see that those stupid things that I would then step back into didn't fit anymore. I was new. I was different. God had changed me. And he began to change what I stepped into, who I followed, what I did with the time that he had given me. And we need to do that. It's not, it's, it's not a one-time thing. When I came to faith, all of a sudden I got rid of things, I changed things, I started doing this, I stopped doing that, my whole life was different. No, it's an ongoing process, isn't it? It's kind of like cleaning out your closet. I still have things in there that I could have gotten rid of years ago. Now, I've, I've shed a lot of stuff over the years. I've laid a lot of things aside, but there's still stuff that I could now get rid of. I've got old stuff that I kept that I can still get rid of. Also, don't we get new stuff that we collect along the way? But then when we look at it later, we say, you know, that really doesn't fit. I'm not going to wear that. That's, that's not really me. And we need to lay that aside. Let me give you an illustration. When I was in India, I think it was a second trip. Maybe this would have been around 2017, 2018, somewhere in there. Visiting the, a wonderful ministry, Ray of Hope ministry, that the church participates in in India. And um, while I was there, well, I wanted to be able to talk with people about what I had seen and what I had experienced and, and, and what the Lord was doing there. And, and, and I was in a store, and they had this really cool-looking shirt that had Sanskrit, ancient Sanskrit writing all over it. It was covered with the Sanskrit phrase, it just repeated, repeated, repeated in different colors. And it's just like, that's eye-catching. That is cool India. People will see it and say, what's that? And I said, oh, well, it's Sanskrit. You know, like I know something. And, and uh, well, it turned out I didn't. Somebody saw the shirt 
even before I left India, and said, you know, you know what that script is that's on your shirt? I said, no, I, I was told it's Sanskrit. I said, yeah, it's Sanskrit. But it's a, it's a Hindu chant that they would use in a temple, in Hindu worship. It's like, okay, that probably doesn't fit who I am now. And though nobody around me might not know, but now I know. And I know this, this phrase, honoring an idol, doesn't fit with one who serves the true and the living God. And there's a lot of stuff that can easily hang on in life or creep back into life that doesn't really fit with one who seeks to walk with and honor the true and the living God. We need to put aside, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Now, in that phrase, laying aside the deeds of darkness, I don't want to suggest, because we we are going to go through a brief list that Paul gives us here. For example, and he moves in three different layers. And as he does that, I don't want us to get the notion that the Christian life is merely a list of particularly things that you don't do. We are um, we, we, we come from a Baptist heritage. We tend to divide things by what, what they are not or define things by what we don't do. And that's not, that's not the intention here. But there are some practicalities of those kinds of things that no longer fit. This, this list is meant to be a, 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 in a con- contrasting to a new way of living, contrasting a way of love to a previous way of self-gratification. Keep that in mind as we, as we go through this list. He says in verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing or drunkenness. That carousing or, or partying, um, this is, a, there's a, this is a, a, a source of false joy. This will be fun. I will find fun and fulfillment in doing these things. And what's described there, the kind of carousing and partying and drunkenness that's being described is the self-indulgent, hedonistic parties that would be held in the honor of the Greco-Roman god Dionysius. And Dio, I don't think I spelled that right, Dionysius, Dionysius. Dionysius was the, was the, was the Greco-Roman god of, of well, wine and partying and pleasure and casual hookups. That was Dionysius. And so to party in his fashion and celebration of him, that was an easy, that was an easy and, and a, quote, fun God to follow. The closest parallel we would have today would be Mardi Gras. And Mardi Gras has got an interesting take. Mardi Gras is a French word that means Fat Tuesday. And it's Fat Tuesday for a reason, because after Fat Tuesday comes Ash Wednesday. And Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, is that last free-for-all, that last open, public, fill-the-streets, godless celebration of debauchery and drunkenness and partying and hookups, because we're all going to have to be good for the next 40 days. And so we're going to get in all the self-indulgement that we can in Mardi Gras up to Fat Tuesday before we begin to self-deny and try to behave ourselves for the next 40 days of the season of Lent from Ash Wednesday up until Easter. Now, what Paul is describing for us 
instead of laying aside the old and no longer fits and putting on the new, is he's, he's telling us of a reversal here. That instead of indulging before self-denial during Lent, this new life calls us to a reversal that would self-deny now because of the wonderful kingdom, the glorious experience, the fullness and fulfillment that will be ours when our Savior comes. So he turns the norms of the day upside down, or maybe I should say he turns them right side up. He says, not in carousing and drunkenness, the indulgement, indulgement for a false joy, not in sexual promiscuity or immorality and sensuality. Here would be a false sense of acceptance, a false sense of love and belonging to another. He goes from the open, godless partying, fill the streets, Mardi Gras celebration, to the individual and private choices that a couple might make. I imagine here maybe a younger couple, maybe an older couple. They've fallen in love. They, they believe they're probably going to be married someday. And they sort of reason and rationalize that, you know, our, our love for one another, it's like we're married already. We're committed to each other. We just don't have the whole paper yet. Uh, let's go ahead and do what we want to do together. That's very common. And it's also very common that it doesn't last. You see, the joy of intimacy is realized when it's an expression of a unique and, um, a, a unique and secure covenant commitment together between two. A commitment that I'm committed to you. I have devoted my life to love you, to care for you, to honor and to respect you. This is a, there's a singular relationship in which there's a, there's a security, even a safety and acceptance of one for another. And that's where that joy and intimacy can be realized and fulfilled. It's not that God has his rules, that he would withhold something good for you until you do it his way, because he's just fussy about that. God is actually preserving something that is better for you. Let me give you a, a simple, even a, a child's illustration of this. I, I've described it before as it's, it's kind of like the week before Christmas. You found out where the presents were stashed. And they're all wrapped, but you've got sharp scissors. You can go in there. Maybe your family, like mine, has the three, three piece of tape rule where instead of tying everything up with long strips of multitude layers of tape, you use one on each end and one in the middle, three little pieces of tape. And you just slice that tape, slice that tape. You can peek in the in, in, under the wrapper, see the box. You know what you're getting. The only problem with that, you got a little bit of the excitement a little bit early, but not the full realization of it. It's not like you can take it out and play with it. Man, mom's going to know about that. But... You've also ruined Christmas. You will have none of the joy, the excitement, the fulfillment, and as well as cheating the giver out of that, that joy and excitement of the receiving of a gift that was long waited for and hoped for. There's a false gratification in 
in the sensuality of our culture. We live in a culture that sensual images and creating desire, it sells anything. It, it's, it's the substitute for plot lines in, in, in movies. It's the substitute for, for humor in sitcoms today. It's kind of like, if I could illustrate it with another sense, a more innocent one, the sense of taste. We also live in our culture, it's a prepared foods culture. It's a frozen food culture. And in the culture of prepared, rehydrate, frozen foods, the rich nuances, even the cold story, or the, not the cold story, the cold storage tomato is not the same, is it? There's a, there's a richness of, of the nuances of flavor and freshness of highlights and accents that have been reduced in our prepared food world to two. Sugar and salt. And we say, oh, that tastes so good, when really it's no, it tastes so salty. You wait in line in the morning for coffee. What you're really waiting for is a little bit of caffeine and a lot of sugar. The richness of the flavors of so many things around us, good to enjoy, have been washed out in the processing and the freezing and the storage and the waiting. But we can replace that with a little more sugar or a little more salt. And so it is with the richness of life together that God gives us. We would seek in the central images and storylines and movies, we would seek, seek for pleasure and escape, but those very things actually ruin our taste for what is real. God intends for us to have in relationship with others the reality of these things, which is otherwise they're only a, an escape, a poor substitute. A false acceptance, a false love, a false sense of pleasure. And the last one he moves to, you see what he does here? He starts with that which all the Christians there in the church at Rome would easily recognize. Yeah, those open, hedonistic parties of Dionysus, those don't apply. Those are not for Christians any longer. And then he moves through and he gets a little personal with our morals and our behavior. And then he moves through and he gets to the polite things that, yes, Christians do. Look at the third phrase, not in strife and jealousy. Those things that we might pursue for a, for a, a false significance or a, a false defense of our own self-identity. These are the acceptable sins in a self-serving society. I want it my way. I want what you have for me. But that's not the way of love. It's the way of the two-year-old toddler. I want what I want for me. It is not the way of Jesus. Rather, Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, Be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul says to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation I am in, there to be content. Whether it's troubles, whether it's uncertainty, whether it's prosperity, I can be content in either of these things. I don't have to fight and scrabble and argue or be jealous about somebody else's seemingly easier time or greater prosperity or higher level of comfort. No, 
God has set for me the soil in which he is growing me. And it's not a matter of what's right today so much as it's a matter of what is my God doing and how is he growing me for a future that he intends that I can trust. I don't need to be jealous about what somebody else has and I don't need to then in some sort of anti-opposite jealous pride in the midst of my troubles assume that God's doing something more in me than he is in somebody else. None of that is the point. The point is I can trust myself to God. In his hands, I can be content in whatever situation. Our culture's sensual fascination is a lack of contentment. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hungry search for something just beyond our grasp. It's a focus on self, contrary to the life of love in Christ. We are instead to live in a way, we are to put off the things of nighttime, we are instead to live in a way that fits the coming day. We're to put on the armor of light, he said in verse 12. In verse 13, let us behave properly or appropriately or in a way that fits with the day that we're in or the day that we're going to. Go back to the travel analogy. And I might leave, I might leave Washington early morning when it's still, the air is still cold, but I'm going to get off the plane in Zimbabwe where it's going to be 80 degrees and I'm not going to need the winter coat. And so we put aside those things that no longer fit. And it's not a matter of what fits now, it's what fits where I'm going. Let us behave appropriately as in the day, as if we were in the day already. You are God's kingdom ambassadors set in advance. You are the ones who will show something of your Savior, something of his kingdom, something of his love and his sacrifice and his justice and his care, his noticing. You're the ones to show something of him to the people around you a foretaste of his kingdom beforehand as we walk with him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus, put, put on the armor of light, he said in verse 12. That, that made me immediately think of Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God. We are in a spiritual warfare and we have an armor that we clothe ourselves with. And that armor is, first of all, the characteristics of Jesus. Who is Christ for me? He is my salvation. He is my righteousness. He is my truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He is all of these things. But because he is, we are to put them on. That armor, I think, is transformational. That's why it's in the second half of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is all about all that God has done for us in Christ. And then the second half, he begins to tell us to walk accordingly, to walk in the light, to walk in light of this salvation, just like Paul says in Romans chapter 12. After 11 chapters of all that God has done for us in Jesus and his faithfulness through history as shown in Israel. He says, I urge you 
I beseech you, I beg you, please, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, on the basis of, because of, and even by means of, the mercies of God for you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he goes on in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 to show us what that looks like. But everything that we're told to do in chapter 12 forward is based on the truth of the gospel of what God has done for us in Jesus in chapters 1 through 11. And so it is with Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the basis of the gospel of what God has done for us that we then begin to live out and walk out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so somebody gave me years ago a very helpful phrase. You've heard me say it before. You'll hear me say it again. Gospel, or rather moral imperatives, moral commands, always stand on gospel indicatives. Moral commands always stand on gospel truth. Don't get it the other way around. Don't try to follow moral imperatives in order to get to gospel truth of salvation. No, it's because of what God has done for us in Christ, therefore we then do. His life is lived in us. So the, these, these urgings to put aside and to put on these are out of what God has done for us, and yet we are to put on. That breastplate of righteousness, it transforms my heart from self-serving to sacrifice, to love, to giving, to noticing others. The helmet of salvation is the truth of my salvation in God. There is no way, I, I need not fear who can kill the body, because he has me. I am safe, I am secure, I am safer than any helmet could make any Roman soldier. And yet that helmet of his salvation also changes my thinking, doesn't it? It changes all the calculations. It, it changes how I think about what's, what's risk and what's reward and what's, what's the cost and what's the benefit. It changes how I think about what's the right move here because of what's the final outcome. The helmet of salvation changes my thinking. My feet shod with the gospel of peace. First of all, I know I'm on firm ground. I stand not on my ability. I stand not securely in these nice slippers. No, I stand on the gospel of the truth of what Jesus is for me. And yet, my feet shod with the gospel of peace not only enables me to stand firm in the midst of other lies and contradictions that come, but these, it, those gospel shoes are what send me to others. So even that Ephesians 6 armor, as we think about it, it's, it's, a, it's an action armor. It's, a, it's an armor that calls to response. It's an armor that, that affects our, the things that we do. That's why it says to put on. Put on, just as Jesus has given me life, now Jesus' life lives in me. That phrase, put on, is a phrase Paul himself uses in our salvation and then in our Christian life. In, if, in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he said, Those of you, as many as you, whoever of you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, you have been, we're not even talking about the, the um, rite of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, having believed. But when you believe and you are placed into Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, and we then testify of that when we we, we step into baptism. We go under the water. We come out of the water. We are demonstrating that faith. We are testifying to it. We are experiencing an object lesson of it. That I died with him and I was buried with Jesus. 
And I was raised with Jesus to walk in new life. Well, Paul says, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have a new identity in him. You are no longer who you once were. You are now a child of God. You belong to him. You have been transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. All of that's true for you when you put on Christ. And so, now here, there's an imperative form of the same word. The believers are to put on Jesus by living out that new identity. Let me say it this way. Having put on Christ by faith in his salvation, believers now put on Jesus by living out that new identity. Having put on Christ by faith, we put on Christ in life. Seen in Jesus before God, there's our standing, so Jesus should then now be seen in us before others. To put on Christ is to live appropriately toward his kingdom, is to live in love, is to, is to live and to walk as he did. It's to, with our feet, follow his steps, to deny ourselves, to take up a, a, a cross, be willing of suffering, and to follow him. Now, he says, do this at the start of, of, the, of this passage in verse 11, that we, we wake up early, we live toward his kingdom. He said in verse 11, by doing this, and I pointed that that doing this goes back to verse 8 of the same chapter, to love one another. We love one another because the night is, is ending, the day is at hand. And yet, there's more to it than just loving one another. He's fleshed that out further. In fact, if we, if we look back even further in Romans chapter 12, beginning about verse 9, we would, we would find a whole list of what does this new life look like that's different than the old. What is this presenting our bodies, yielding my will to God's will as a living sacrifice? What does it look like? And here's part of that list. If you, if you begin reading from Romans 12 and verse 9, this is what you'd find. First of all, we're to love one another. You're, you're to love your enemies. You're to pray for those who persecute you. We're to not be lazy, but to be eager, willingly zealous about the Lord's work and what he gives us to do. We're to give to, we're to share with others, we're to practice hospitality, we're, invite, we're to invite others in. We're to notice and to care for others, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. We're to not be proud, but to associate with others. We're to trust God and not seek our own vindication, not seek our own rights, not sing our, seek our own revenge. If we look forward from this passage in Romans chapter 14, we, were, we would be reminded that we're, we're not to argue against one another. We're not to judge one another in regard to little things or lesser things or secondary issues. In short, we're to let the Spirit of God increasingly live the life of Jesus in my life, in your life. Now, like good football, victory comes from a good offense and a good defense. In fact, this time of year, they say that a good defense, uh, offense wins games, defense wins championships. And so there's an offense and a defense here in these, in these instructions to put on Jesus, to lean forward into his kingdom in the way that we live and the choices that I make, 
To live now in a way that fits the coming day. That's going on offense. That's stepping into the future. That's going on offense against the present darkness. At the same time, to practice a good defense. He says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires. To practice a good defense is to make no provision, to guard your heart and mind, to give no opportunity for those fallen humanity cravings. You know ways that you're tempted. Stay away from that. Close that door, shut that window, pull that curtain, whatever it is, you don't need to expose yourself to. You don't need to entertain in mind the things that you know will lead you where you don't want to go. That's the whole thing about the starting with the godless open out in the streets partying and moving to the private choices about purity, moving further into arguments and, and, and pursuing what I want for me and being jealous of others. You know where you've been tempted. What will you do? That? How will you defend yourself from that? How will you not make a provision to go there? I, things that I'll choose to watch or look at or, or, or even devices that I will use or not use because that's dangerous for me. I know where that's going to lead. It's kind of like, well, I told somebody that I met earlier that there might be a place for a cat in this message. I think it's here. We have a cat. You've heard of her before. Somebody told me recently they're quite sure she's part raccoon. That may be true. She's so soft and fuzzy. You want to pet her. And you pet her, and she buzzes, and she's liking it, and it's all good. And all of a sudden, there's this... <laughs> and somebody's bleeding, just like that. Where did that come from? Well, that's what Paul is warning us against here. There's those things in life. Oh, you think it's fine? Oh, it's plushy? I'm just going to play with it a little bit. Oh, she, it wants to play fight. Oh, that's fun. It's not using its claws yet. That's just to suck you in. And pretty soon, it will have its hooks into you. There are things that you know, this is my susceptibility. This I know I should not play with and don't. It's a lot easier to say no before it gets its hooks into you. Before you've already spent time in your mind thinking about what you'd want to do or how far you're going to go, how you're going to play with it a little bit in your mind. No. We make no provision. We don't give an opportunity. We don't open the door. Have you wondered why Jordan, Egypt, other surrounding countries don't want to provide refuge to Hamas militants so that they could leave the Gaza Strip and so that Israel could, in a sense, be forced? Listen, all the Hamas militants left. They're all in Egypt now or they're all in Jordan now or they're all in Saudi now. You can pull back the army, stop the bombing and the, all this other stuff that's going on because Hamas isn't there anymore. That'd be an easy solution, it would seem. You would undercut Israel's whole purpose for the war that continues. They don't want Hamas in their countries either. Because, yes, they'll play nice at first. But at the end, they have the same outcomes intended for those other surrounding monarchies. 
as they would like to impose within the broader Israel as well. Don't play with it. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its desires. And so that leads us to a question. What should I put off? What should I put off? There's something as I go through my closet, something I've held on to that I no longer should keep. Something that continues to weigh me down, take up space in my life. It seems relatively neutral, perhaps. Maybe it's simply getting in the way. Maybe it's a box of stuff I've stored that I continue to trip over. What is it that's in my life? It's just completely inappropriate and nobody knows but me. Or maybe it's seemingly harmless, but it's keeping me busy about the wrong thing. What is it in my life? Is it where I look for approval, where I look for fulfillment? Is it something in relationship in ways that aren't right? Is it the need for me to wait for God's best? Rather, as I anticipate His coming, joy to the world, that I want to meet me be my joy. I want to have joy and not shrink back in embarrassment at his coming. I want to be ready. I don't want to show up at the airport in my pajamas. What do I need to put on early? To not be afraid. Maybe to speak up. To go to others. To invite somebody else in. What am, what am I doing? Where I'm going? What do I need to add in? What sacrifice is God calling me? What thing that would be better than what I'm pursuing do I need to go ahead? You know, we had a funny thing happen in the last service. I, 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 I don't want to describe it yet. But it was just after the kids were singing their song about don't be afraid, give glory to God. And it seemed like we couldn't do that in the church as the way that we wanted to. And yet... They took a step anyway, and they went ahead, and my, what God did. And the service, the first service ended differently because we were willing to go a little outside the box. I told you that we got up early, about 3 a.m. or so. It was still dark, but the day was coming. Our departure was at hand. We were going to see the kids. It would be worth it all. Did I mention it was the day, it was the Monday after Easter. And that made it all possible. You know, all the busyness of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, now we were free to go. But in a far greater way, because of Easter, because of his death for us and his resurrection, we are free to go. There is nothing now that need hold you back. Have you believed in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? That in his death, he took away all of your guilt, all of your sin. If you will believe God for it. God, I believe you concerning Jesus who died in my place for my guilt, that I could be right before you. And then in his resurrection, we too are raised in him, joined together with him. We are raised to a new life, a new kind of life. Nothing of the old need hold us back. We are headed not for Zimbabwe. Oh, goodness, no. We are headed for his kingdom forever. Joy to the world. 
joy to you. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus came. We thank you that he's coming again. And Father, we pray that you would press that on our hearts, that you would, you would put him before us in ways that as we spend time in your word and we see not merely a list of things that we should do, we see the character of our God and of our Savior. And Father, in him, in him is our new life. Father, we, we long for your kingdom. We long for our Savior's coming. And Lord, we want to be ready. We want to be more ready than we are. We want to be more ready than we could yet even really imagine. And Father, we need you to do that. But Lord, you call us to yield to you. You call us to take a next step with the light that we have, that which you've shown us is wrong, to lay it aside. That which you've shown us, this is your right. This is true. This is the light that you call us to step into not fearing what we think we're giving up, not fearing what we think might happen. But Lord, press on us the reality of your kingdom that would cause us to trust you, to yield ourselves to you. And we can be sure about it because of what you've already done. Because your son already came into this world for us. And it's in his name we pray.